haut de la rue Saint-Vincent, un poète et une inconnue s'aimèrent l'espace d'un instant, mais il ne l'a jamais revu. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I am joined as usual by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And uh, we are back with a box set this week. We have Jean Renoir's Stage and Spectacle, three films by Jean Renoir. But before we get into those, it is spy number 241 which means it is time for a look back at the previous 10, and we decide what is the best and the worst. Okay. We've had a pretty stacked run, I would say, over the last couple. Yeah, I think ever since we hit the 200 mark, it was, it's been more or less very good films, mm. um, with a few rotten tomatoes in there. But Spoiler alert for this episode. Pretty sparingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh no (laughs) Um, but yeah I'll Uh, I'll run through the list of the films that we're going to be talking about we have The Testament of Dr. Mabuse A Story of Floating Weeds and Floating Weeds two films by Yasujiro Uzu Stray Dog The Tin Drum The Leopard Mama Roma Smiles of a Summer Night A Woman is a Woman The Lower Depths and Early Summer so interestingly just on just on first glance, we have two Ozu and two Kurosawa in the mix here. Yeah. Uh, well, kind of technically, um, three Ozu. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, anyway, it's a very, very Japanese-skewed list there, which, mm. uh, which is fine. Japanese and Italian. And, um, <laughs> and Italian, sure. The Leopard, Mama Roma. Actually, I really like Mama, Mama Roma. Um, but I think, I think for the best... I would probably give it to uh, Early Summer. Mm-hmm. Mm, early Summer. Or, or even Floating Weeds, like, yeah, Ozu. You go on Ozu great, with these. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stray Dogs was definitely the better out of uh, out of the two Kurosawa films, with Lower Depths being the other one. Definitely, yeah. I did really, really enjoy that, but uh, I, I, there's something about Ozu now that... Um, um, just, I think it's just because we've had a concentrated time with him over the last, you know, several weeks that I'm really starting to enjoy him. Yeah, not just that, but also Stray Dog is very much a uh, kind of commercial Kurosawa. It's, it's him doing a popcorn film. It's not necessarily one of his yeah. masterpiece films. So that one's, you know, you can understand why that's not the go-to. Um, that's right. Yeah, so you, you're going to pin down Early Summer as yours? Sure, I'm comfortable with that. Mm, I I think I've I've got to give it to, honestly, I think uh, the Tin Drum. Yep. I I'm yeah. A, I was going to say that's a bit of a runner-up. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Tin Drum, and I will give uh, with an asterisk, uh, like honorable mentions to uh, both the Leopard and Smiles of a Summer Night. Hmm. Mm. It was a really enjoyable Bergwin film, Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, Seeing him do like a... Unusual. Uh, yeah, like a Shakespearean-style comedy farce was really enjoyable. Great performances, really well made. And then The Leopard, man. That, like, final hour-long ballroom scene is still... I still think about it, so... Yeah, that's right. It truly was an epic, yeah. And I... I yeah, mean, no, I'll, you're right. It yeah. has been a great run. Yeah, and Early Summer, of course, brilliant. Like, Ozu, can't go wrong. 
and I would also say I really enjoyed Jean Renoir's the l- version of the Lower Depths. Yep. Which I yeah, guess that's would... right. It was definitely the better of the two. So if you wanted to pick one, mm. it, w- it would be Jean Renoir's the Lower Depths for sure. Yeah. Um, only that it was more kind of charming and less Te- technically interesting. I think as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, Kurosawa's one, that's probably the worst, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that was probably the worst Kurosawa film I've seen in so much so that it's it's almost, to me, it was like an average film. I've never had that happen to me watching his films before. You you didn't vibe on Stray Dog all that much, I remember at the time, but it's, I think that, like, on the initial watch, you were a bit like, huh? That was just kind of very base and... I think with the discussion you appreciated that more, but Lower Depths we just couldn't crack, and it is just a lesser film from him, which sucks. <laughs> like, not the film sucks, it sucks but it, it's it, a lesser it's, film. Yeah. No, it, it sucks to say that there is a lesser film from Kurosawa, is what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But, yeah um, that's right. But but none of these, I would say, from the last, uh, last ten, were shit. Were, no. Like, they're all worthwhile watching. Yeah, we, we, it's been a while since we've had a film that is, like, actively bad, or one that we haven't connected, mm. like, you know, that's kind of harsh to say actively bad, but, like, one that we haven't connected with, or hasn't hit us, and we're just like, don't enjoy watching. That hasn't happened for quite a while. Yeah. Until now? Until <laughs> now. Segway. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I feel really bad, because, because I, I, um... A while back we did an episode on the magic flute and we got some hate mail on that one because cause we didn't get it and we thought it was shitty. Yeah, see, the hate mail we got on that one was someone who was writing a PhD thesis on the, the musical The Magic Flute and listened to okay. our episode assuming that it would be a place to get information on The Magic Flute <laughs> <laughs> rather yeah. than two guys dissecting... The adapt the film adaptation version of it, and they did not enjoy it. So, yeah. and at that time we we didn't understand Bergman. This was early on. Oh God, early you Sean? I don't know. Yeah, this is close to two hundred films ago at this point. It, like you know, very long time ago. Mm. So anyway, I, I don't want it to do you know devolve into a magic flute episode. Yeah, uh, when we just shit on these movies because I've have found that the more you research. Uh, the more you'll like a movie. And when you finish a film and you go, you know what, I didn't get that. I'm confused. I don't really... I did not really uh, connect with it on any level. If you go and do a bit of research, you tend to start building some kind of bridge anyway. So that's what we've attempted to do. Yeah, yeah. So um, as I said at the beginning of the episode, we uh, have dived into this week the stage and spectacle box set, three films by Jean Renoir. And I guess, uh, as we've done in the past, we'll go through one by one and discuss these as they appear spine order-wise. The first one is The Golden Coach from 1953. Uh, Did you want me to read the back of the Criterion box? Yeah, sure. I mean, before you start, I thought I wouldn't kind of contextualize this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we'd already seen Rules of the Game, uh, which is 1939. Uh, We'd already seen... The Grand Illusion, which was the spine number one a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think in the 30s. Uh, anyway, Renoir 
was doing his films, he moved to America during the Nazi occupation in the 40s. And then he came back in the 50s to France to film these this trilogy. Uh, Although I, I, I will say uh, The Golden Coach and Elena and Her Men, which we'll get to, both of those were not French productions. They were It was him returning to France as like a home base, but these films weren't French productions. Mm. His first uh, kind of return to French cinema was French Can-Can, the, the middle okay. film of this trilogy. True. Uh, but in any case, uh, I think his greats, Renoir's Jean Renoir, his greats were pre-1950s, uh, I suppose you could argue. Um, but in any case, he felt a longing to go back to France, so we get this trilogy. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, massive asterisks. Like, we, we obviously have not... We've only... This is our, I think, fourth, fifth, and sixth Renoir film we've talked about on the podcast. Like Tom mentioned, you know, we've had Grand Illusion, uh, Rules of the Game, and The Lower Depths. Uh, so we are missing a couple of the major films of his career that we still have not talked about or seen together yet. We haven't seen The River, we haven't seen La Bête Humaine, um, so we're just going to try and uh, decipher and discuss these films with the understanding of Renoir as we have currently, so that's that's my mm. asterisk there. <laughs> okay, so yeah, please start with uh, The Golden Coach oh. synopsis if you could. Alrighty, uh, The Golden Coach is a ravishing 18th century comic fantasy about a viceroy who receives an exquisite golden coach and gives it to a tempestuous star of a touring Commedia dell'arte company. Master director Jean Renoir's sumptuous tribute to the theatre presented here an English-language version he favoured, set to the music of Vivaldi and built around the vivacious and volatile style Anna Magnani. Yeah, which we're familiar with because uh, she was in Mamma Roma, yes. uh, the Pasolini film from 1962, which, and she, she's fantastic. I think in all of these three films... Every single lead is amazing. They're all really talented actors and they're all doing a really great job in these films. Yeah, we've, we start off with Anna Magnani and Golden Coach, then we jump to French Can Can where we have uh, Jean Jabin, again, working mm-hmm. with amazing Jean Renoir. They previously worked together, Grand Illusion um, and Lower Depths and things. And now, uh, and then Elena and her men, you have Ingrid Bergman, like the incredible Ingrid Bergman here. So they are very much vehicles for stars. Mm. But Anna Magnini, she's always... I mean, her laugh is so infectious and uh, she adds... Uh, she adds so much emotionality to her, her characters just because of that laugh. Yeah. You can't help but engage with that. Yes. Um, but yeah, this... It, it kind of... Out of the three, I would say this is probably my favourite. Mm-hmm. Um, How come? Is that... Uh, is that because of the cast? or It's because of Anna, pretty much. I, I think <laughs> it, it, yeah. she nails her performance so beautifully. And I think, I mean, obviously this box set thing called Stage and Spectacle, it's Renoir doing essentially love letters to kind of old theatrical style filmmaking. And um, he he's going for comedic farce across all of them. And this is the only one where I think it really works. Like he, he actually is able okay. to pin down what he's doing in the in terms of a kind a, a comedic farce and like you know incorporating the elements of a commedia dell'arte and having that 
as a major focus of the film early on, I think helps kind of let the audience adjust and be like, oh, okay, we're, we're going for a broad theatrical style presentation here, and all right, I'm on board. And that's something I think is somewhat lacking in the next two. Mm. So you're saying that the, the, meta, the meta goal of this film is to portray uh, some kind of theatre... Yes. And then the subject matter is theatre as well, so it's kind of all unified and it's all working together. Yeah, and I think he, he tackles that even more so in the French Can-Can, but doesn't do it as successfully. Mm-hmm. Like, the French Can-Can is all about show business, but I, d- I don't think it works on that farcical level the same way as the Golden Coach does. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm to be honest, I'm not laughing. It, th- this is my This is my problem that i find sometimes not all the time but sometimes mm-hmm. when you're watching a film um that's a comedy from you know so many so many decades ago um when you put it into a modern setting with our own sensibilities it just kind of falls to pieces because i'm certain that i was watching the screen and there was a joke an intended joke written by somebody and portrayed on film by renoir and i it just went right over my head yeah and that would have happened loads of times, just because it's a different time place. Also, um, also contextually, uh, I think um, that kind of comes into play more so with the next two, but it's the idea of where these films are... what they're talking about in relation to uh, socioeconomical stuff as well. Like, we obviously now, you know, cut to 70-plus years in the future, and we're like, I... and us being two blokes who don't actually know much about history being like i guess that was a thing <laughs> so you know not having the cultural frame yeah. of reference for what they're discussing kind of you know puts up a barrier as well well it's already i mean they're talking about uh royalty they're talking about um like a level of of hierarchy like there's a the bishop obviously in the in the film um and yeah i suppose it's it's relatable to some degree but not um, it's still, it's still some kind of some kind of inapproachable for me. Yeah. But in any case, I must admit that when that golden coach, the very golden coach, the, the name, its namesake, uh, came out on on screen, I was uh, I was quite thrilled by it. There's a lot of amazing set design and costume design, and yeah. Uh, uh, to to that end, actually, this is um, the first major film uh, made in Technicolor produced in Italy, so it is very much so a striving for what looks elegant, what looks beautiful, let's let's put that up on the screen. Okay. Yeah, well, I was reading that uh, Francois Truffaut, who's obviously a big, 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 big fan of Renoir, uh, de- was saying that this is yeah. the most noblest and most refined film ever made, and I think he wrote that, uh, you know, more or less at the time. It came out. And he then went on to name his production company after this film, actually. Oh, really? Mm, yeah, Le Film de Carasse. Okay. Mm. Uh, so he was a massive yeah, so... fan, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which leads me to question, what is it in this film that makes, you know, such interesting and wonderful filmmakers like Truffaut and Scorsese enjoy this film and not just that but also what makes Renoir want to make this type of film yeah um well in all three he's trying to they're all a celebration of some kind of um 
some kind of art form. Yeah. And it's almost like they have a they have a kind of I mean they're set in the past. They're set in the nineteenth century. They all have uh, an element of nostalgia to them. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's interesting to me that Renoir, who's living in the States, perhaps gets nostalgic for his own home country, comes back and says, you know what, I need to do a film that celebrates the old the old ways before cinema or theatre. I need to do a film about the French can-can because that's so important. And so they all have this um, quest to, to celebrate some kind of nostalgic um, aspect of the French uh, or French history, cultural yeah. history. Yeah, that that's my pretty much entire take on French Can Can, but I guess we'll we'll get there. Yeah, so I ended up watching on the Criterion channel a lot of the uh, all essentially of the special features that go along with these, and I, I got some pull quotes from the introduction by Scorsese that comes along with the DVD, and he said uh, the Golden Coach is rather like a stage play. With characters from Commedia dell'arte, the film is light and gorgeous. The emphasis is on decor and composition. The use of color is quite extraordinary, as is always the case with Renoir. And many of the scenes, the frame reminds me of his father's paintings. Ultimately, it's a film, or should I say, the film, about the mercurial profession, the difficult, the painful, and joyous profession, acting. So... I found it very interesting watching Scorsese's introduction, like seeing previous ones and him discussing other Criterion films. He delves loftily into the themes and, you know, the production and such. Whereas this one, he's like, it sure is pretty. <laughs> but he do- he yeah, doesn't really that, yeah. seem to have much else to add to it. And the, the fact that he points out himself that the emphasis within this film is on the framing and the color and the lighting. It's there's yeah. I mean, it, it's not it's, it's not a steep exploration of, of the film, is it? But at the same time, uh, these are comedies, right? Mm-hmm. Comedy musicals, and uh, I think by definition, they're not typically too technical. You know, they're no. supposed to wow the audience. Um, just like you know the, the the famous Hollywood ones of the fifties and sixties, I remember a lot of the Disney stuff. It's all just there to you know wow you with color and movement and yeah. and uh, sound, which is essentially what Renoir is doing with these. And it's I I just think it's I think why we probably didn't connect with them is because it's a like we said previously not you know being there in the time and having that kind of spectacle. We're kind of used to that now with all the bullshit that we see in movie, like modern day blockbuster popcorn films um, but it's also it, it seems almost I hate to word, use the words like beneath him based on what we've seen previously <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but I mean, you know, it's his choice yeah um, oh, well that's what I mean like ultimately I don't want it that's why I don't want to necessarily it's, it's yeah. funny it's interesting I, I do think that it's it's not necessarily at odds with his other work, but it's definitely like a... It feels like a side project or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely not a a step forward in terms of like progressing his career. It's very much like a side step to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to shit on it too much because as... I, I do agree that there is... It is marvellous to look at uh, the colours and the movement and the sets and whatnot. 
Um, and so certainly in that regard, there's definitely something there. Uh, it was more just the comedy kind of starts to, you start to lose interest in, in that respect. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of actually, you mentioned that um, Jean Renoir, I, I didn't actually know this. It just never occurred to me that Jean Renoir's dad was the famous painter Renoir, mm. the impressionist painter. Yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't. You know, it's not something that that I thought about until now. And actually, it's kind of it kind of suits these films. Really, really suit that. Again, it's like a nostalgic thing almost. Like he's like, I'm going to do something that that you know my father might have made if he was a filmmaker. Yeah, he, something that's colorful and vibrant. Precisely, he's he's now you know. chasing the perfect use of color and the perfect use of framing and things. And like, how can he present? a beautiful image on screen you know where you know at this point it's it's like i'd said it was the first technicolor film made in italy it was you know this big deal to make these gorgeous vibrant color films so he wants to try and push that to the furthest extent that he possibly can and i think in doing that he 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 nails that for sure like this is a gorgeous film to look at but I think he he's his focus on those elements of the filmmaking process, uh, kind of let other elements fall to the wayside in terms of actual staging, and I think narrative mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, actually, uh, yeah. Go on. What were you saying? Yeah, that within that he's able to create, I guess, um, beautiful individual frames, but. To me, it, it it pales in comparison to the camera work that he did in Rules of the Game, or even more recently, like, The Lower Depths. It, it seems like he's... And, and I mean, it makes sense, because he's, pre- he's presenting a story about theatre, and, like, down to the point of using Commedia dell'arte and things to help represent that story. So it makes sense that the way that he would stage his actors is in a very flat, almost theatrical manner. Within those frames... It's very beautiful to look at, but the cinematographical language of where he's putting everyone in the frame, it's very flat and kind of dull. Well, actually, the uh, cinematographer for this film, not the other two, but for this film, is also within the uh, Renoir family. He's the nephew of Jean. Mm -hmm. Um, Claude Renoir. And actually, I found out that he was the cinematographer for Barbarella as well. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, but... But you kind of, yeah, he, he didn't have a, I don't know whether I would say that his career was, you know, majestic mm. or whatever. Mm. Well, I, so I, he, there, there he, is something to it where you're saying that like, what's, what's happening on screen is colorful and, and wonderful, but there is some cinema language. It, it lacks that depth. at odds a little bit with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've got a, I watched uh, Renoir himself actually introduces the films on across all three like on the Criterion editions and I had to pull a bunch of quotes from him actually uh, across all of these I thought it was super interesting what he said about this one in particular is that it's a film of great detail uh, and then his quote is in this film Claude and I were able to work out uh, out the color contrast uh, with great care Sometimes, for instance, we would stop shooting because certain costumes weren't in proper relation to the background. Uh, sometimes we'd paint entire sets and change wigs and makeup. So they were just shooting in full service of color. Mm-hmm. 
At this point in the recording, Tom needed to take a little bit of a break to go look after his daughter. So we had to pick it up again later on that evening. So that explains the little bit of a break and a gap in the conversation. But we'll head back into the episode right now. So, yeah, you were talking about cinematography. I thought you had a quote on... uh, We're kind of almost done with talking about the golden coach though yeah yeah I'm, I'm more than happy to kind of start wrapping this one up even though we've never really <laughs> we've kind of just been talking about it as a whole as opposed to going to the nitty-gritty but yeah no my quote was about um yeah that Renoir and his um uh, nephew Claude would sometimes you know color they took great care in the color contrast Yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose they did, but I still, I still didn't, didn't connect with that the kind of uh, simplistic, yeah, simplistic methods used to to shoot a scene. I, I, I don't know. It's it's Renoir. It's weird to say that. Yeah. Well, that's what I think. It is him. Like later, like you said, he at this point he's moved over and living no longer in France, and it's him kind of connecting back and trying to create something beautiful I, I'm assuming by kind of tapping into that new world of colour film and trying to kind of attach himself back to his youth with the idea of let's let's make a triptych of films about show business, about performing about the arts and you know kind of romanticising that to some degree yeah yeah. it, it just unfortunately uh, well- didn't lead to an entertaining film <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I guess so. Uh, I mean, some people will love it. So, uh, the critic. It seems like the kind of general consensus on, as far as the critics go, is it's like some of them think it's really, really good. Some of them's like it's not for me. Some of them like it's okay. Mm. It's well, kind of all over the shop. But. Yeah. Interestingly, I was reading um Andrew Saris's essay in the um Criterion booklet. And um, he writes about how when it first came out, it was a massive failure, actually, in all three languages, uh, with both critics and the public. Uh, no one really dug it, and we're kind of like, eh, whatever. Um, you know, they've, they've said, he says that the 50s were not really a time for subtextual analysis of movies, and it wasn't until later on that this the film kind of got praised and reassessed as something that was worthwhile, and um, mostly for the colour and the costumes and Anna Magnini's performance. Not not so much the 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 content of the film necessarily, and Eric Roma, the famous filmmaker, uh, described it as an open sesame of all of Renoir's work, meaning that it kind of... Um, uh, where's the actual quote here? Uh, the two customary poles of his work, the art and nature acting in life, take shape in two facing mirrors which reflect each other's images back and forth until it's impossible to tell where one ends and the other begins. So it's essentially, what I take from that is him saying, um, you know, he's looking back at himself and looking back at his career and reflecting on art and show business, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's right. Uh, Certainly the first two films are very much celebrations of whether it be theatre or whether it be dance. Uh, and even in the first film, you know, Golden Coach, what we're talking about now is uh, there's some kind of theme that goes beyond that with, you know, giving the Golden Coach back to the community for the good of the community. You can kind of 
it goes a little bit beyond just like the simple, you know, let's talk about shows. Um, uh, French Can Can really starts to just go, let's strip it back. It's going to be a tale uh, about, you know, uh, the underdog championing uh, an old French dance. And so, yeah, I yeah. mean, we're definitely getting into nostalgic territory here. Yeah. And it's essentially, you know, how. I found it interesting that Scorsese described the Golden Coach as, like, a love letter to acting and performance, whereas I think this French Can-Can way more so. It's like a love letter to show business. Um, Like, every single person is represented there. You've got the artists, the creators, the the businessmen, the money men, the patrons, uh, the people that are feeling left out, like the the lover that's scorned Mm -hmm. because she's gone off to go and join this troupe. It's like a kind of all-encompassing look at... Show business. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, and it's kind of got the the images of the Moulin Rouge as well, so it's it's especially interested in exploring the old old French ways Mm. uh, in that regard. Uh, Do you want to... I think, I suppose... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, we should do a synopsis. Okay. Uh, The back of the Criterion box is such... Uh, 19th century Paris comes vibrantly alive in Jean Renoir's an exhilarating tale of the opening of the world-renowned Moulin Rouge. Jean Jabin mm-hmm. plays the wily impresario Danglard, who makes the can-can all the rage while juggling the love of two beautiful women, an Egyptian belly dancer and a naive working girl turned can-can star. This celebration of life, art, and the city of light, with a cameo by Edith Piaf, is a Technicolor tour de force by Master of Modern Cinema. Yeah, and I would say, again, uh, Jean Jabin is like totally amazing. I mean, like he, you know, he, yeah, yeah. Like we, we were saying of in course. the lower depths episode, like the second he walks on screen, it's just a charisma factory. Mm-hmm. And I would think that I would, I'd like to say that this film was my favorite of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh kind of doesn't mean too much when I don't think highly of any of them but but, but this was my favorite because the because the uh, particularly movement uh in this was was a treat it really it, it was yeah um it had the same it has the same problems that I had with golden coach in that you're kind of it, everything the sets and the and the colors and the movement is wonderful but as soon as you put it in you kind of frame it in a flat way it kind of loses its magic a little bit. Mm. Might be, might be, just you know. I, I don't. I'm not really sure why. Uh, how how you can like end up with such with such an exciting premise of just like let's revive this massive. I mean, the end of the film is this massive sequence of the French Can Can, mm. and still, and, I, and I'm I am kind of wowed by it, but at the same time I was also kind of not engaged throughout the film as well. Yeah, it, it just ends up being another one of those kind of tired, romantic, triangle films where it just kind of slowly, and as you said, kind of flatly presents this world. And there is amazing flourishes of colour and dance and, you know, vibrant movement and things, but it just, like the other ones, it just is a seemingly kind of hollow. <laughs> That was really harsh, and I don't mean it to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah yeah exactly. I don't want it to be. I don't want to shit on this movie. You know, 
but uh, but the fact is that that I, I got bored. Uh, there was there was many scenes when I was just thinking I I don't actually care about any of these characters in particular. Yeah, and I think uh, that's a failure of like th- that happens a lot when you're watching a film that's supposed to be funny and you know it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be a comedy. And it's not making you laugh, and sometimes is even making you cringe. At that point, you start hating the characters. Yeah. Um, and you can it's it's all like it's, it's lost all immersion. You don't really connect with it at all. Uh, and I think that's what happened here to me. Could be. I mean, I'm sure it's different for other people. I know that Francois Truffaut again didn't think this was as good as Golden Coach, but still highly regards it as a, as a fantastic. Uh, film. Oh yeah, and, um, and I'm sure many other critics do as well. Roger Ebert, it's on his list of great movies. He he really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I think he gave it three out of four stars. Okay. Mm. Yeah, so it's clearly it's clearly got something to it. Yeah. Uh, and I I will say the like my takeaway like my read on this film I thought it had it definitely had more going for it than the other two probably um in terms of what. I thought the film was saying like and it is again harking back to that whole nostalgia and the romanticism I I just kind of saw the whole narrative plot as a throwback to kind of uh, pre-war France Um, and you know with having John Jabin like have this dance troupe and like this beautiful new vibrant thing that's going to be at the heart of Paris the Moulin Rouge and he to open that he's using a old dance routine so he it's you know that nostalgic look of like, all right, we have post-war France. Let's try and you know rekindle some of that romantic nostalgia of pre-war France and kind of bring these two worlds together. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it isn't. I mean, it's it's nineteen fifty-five. This film comes out. It's really not too far uh, after such a devastating war. Like mm. it's not too long after that war finished, and. Uh, but I still do get the drive to, to have someone kind of come in and make a film and suggest, you know, let's let's celebrate ourselves again after that yeah. this situation. Yeah. Uh, did this one do any kind of commercial success? Did it see anything like that? Uh, very much so in France, but not so... Mm. And across Europe, but in America and things, it did hardly a whisper. Yeah, I could... I, I kind of... not surprised. And, and I think that's, you know... It's the kind of thing where it's too. like... It being a very French film. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It has the same set designer as uh, uh, Rules of the Game, Max Dewey. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, that kind of thing is all fabulous. The set design and the, the costumes and whatever. But um, And performances. It also came I, across I a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. But also, I, I came across a lot of people, a lot of kind of people plucking the word, the name Edgar Degas, the other, another impressionist painter. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of keep, keeps cropping up when you research this, this woman. He's famous for the, uh, for his ballet dances, oil paintings and sketches and whatnot. Um, I don't know if they were, if he knew, you know, Renoir, Pierre Auguste Renoir, but. Um, there's that, still that same kind of connection to this film with the impressionistic ideals. So, so you think I, um, I Jean Renoir is kind of going for that kind of style that was in Degas' paintings? Well, I mean, all of these, 
yeah, all of these films have an air of, of impressionistic value to them because they're all... I mean, the impressionists were trying to get to a more real um, state of painting, less less lines, painting outdoors rather than painting in a studio, a lot of play on colour and, and light. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they ended up looking, a lot of the, the paintings of the impressionists, they ended up looking less real and more kind of fantastical, more kind of romanticized versions of reality yeah. it's just like it just kind of came across that way that's what i think anyway well that that ties in very um, well with like the how i'm interpreting what room was doing the whole idea of it's a romanticized look back and you know that's he's presenting yeah. a very romanticized vision here yeah yeah i mean it still it still works but i mean the difference with these films is they're they're highly controlled they're not you know they're not a painter going outside and kind of capture reality uh, they're, they're controlled sets and stuff like that. But, yeah, yeah. You know, it still it still has that that vibrancy of of like the impressionistic painters. Mm. And I'm sure he's going for that because his you know his dad's an impressionist painter. Yeah. Well, I think like um, I I read a quote somewhere where he was uh, Renoir was saying like uh, he thought he'd spent like most of his life trying to escape his father, like you know create his mm. own vision in his own mold. And then uh, later in his life, he looked back at all the films that he'd made in his career and he said, oh shit, it turns out I was actually just trying to get closer with my father. Okay. Hmm. Well, he certainly, yeah, it it feels that way very much with these three films in particular. Hmm. Um, I I think things like the lower depths and uh, rules of the game and stuff like that, they're, they're their kind of own entity, but this does really feel like he's... He's trying to meet his his dad somewhere there. Yeah, and I think these films... um, I was writing some notes just before. I I think these films work better as a triptych in in the sense of, like, the the sum is better than its parts. Um, And I'll kind of elaborate on that a bit more once we kind of get to the end after Eleanor and a man and kind of how they link together, I think, and kind of make it a little bit more enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, we will have a conversation of that nature in about ten minutes. Yeah, mm. let's let's actually, if you don't mind, we'll move on to the final film now, Eleanor yeah. and Her Men, nineteen fifty six. I think by in the, the English version, it went by the name Paris Does Strange Things. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that's the thing. Um, yeah, and then this one, where the others are celebrating theatre or dance, this one is positing what I would consider to be a quite an, a kind of interesting theme, really, and that is uh, politicians as showmans. Yes. People's, people of power uh, have to perform to some degree. I mean, in, th- in this film, it's like that's all, it seems like that's all they're doing, more or less, and it's, in reality, it's probably more complex, but... You know, for the sake of a film like this, in this trilogy, you're just exploring, you know, that facet of, of power. Yeah. Um, did you want to do a synopsis? Yeah, I've got the uh, Criterion synopsis here. Set amid the military manoeuvres and Quatre's Juliette carnivals of turn-of-the-century France, Jean Renoir's delirious romantic comedy, Eleanor and Her Men, 
stars a radiant Ingrid Bergman as a beautiful but impoverished Polish princess who drives men of all stations to fits of desperate love. When Eleanor elicits the fascination that yeah, when Eleanor elicits the fascination of a famous general, she finds herself at the center of romantic machinations and political scheming with the hearts of several men as well as the future of France in her hands. Yeah. So yeah, it's a bit more I was kind of scratching my head when when it started for a little while. I was going, "What well, how, how does this fit in with you know, a celebration of theater and and dance? What Stage what's the and cultural spectacle. Where's where's the link?" Yeah, what exactly, exactly. And then of course, you know, the the film kind of falls into the 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 formula of it's theater, it's just politicians. Yeah, it's it's people, a different you know, kind of acting and He's essentially taking, by shifting the platform that we're viewing actors or performers, he's sort of opening it up to be like, everyone, in some degree, is a performer. Mm. You you don't have to be on the stage, you don't have to be an actor, you don't have to be a singer, you don't have to be a can-can dancer to be in show business. (laughs) There are other forms and other ways you can do it. Oh, man, like, the, the applications of this in the modern world is is probably more grand than it was when this film came out oh yeah social platforms facebook and fucking whatever and and especially um you can apply the same things to trump and his twitter platform Mm. which is his stage yeah i mean shit Uh, even like and and he is performing youtube all of this stuff yeah Hmm. yeah so so i do i i liked i like the themes of this uh this film considerably it's still it still fell into the problem of of it's an old comedy musical thing that's just like i i don't i don't think it's funny and i don't engage with it that much but i still really thought the themes were really interesting yeah well on that note i have some super interesting quotes from renoir himself uh from the criterion introduction um Mm -hmm. So, it turns out that when they were making this film, it was actually going to be a completely different kind of film. It was going to be based on a real-life general, uh, General Bollinger, who, um, yeah, and it's essentially the same kind of plot with coup d'etat and scheming and plots and everything. But uh, it turns out at the last minute, the financiers and Renoir, um, now I'll segue into the quote, uh, they realized that they were relatives and heirs of of General Boulanger, uh, and they were very honourable people and extremely likeable people who might be embarrassed by the portrayal of their family member. It might upset them or hurt their feelings. So we abandoned the idea of General Bollinger and made a, and, and made a different movie, a movie of the same subject. Uh, it's still about a general, a plot, and a coup d'etat, but this last-minute switch did not, and I must say, help me make a very good film. Oh. I made the movie that I could. I made the movie one can make when one is improvising almost entirely. So, in Jeez, the Criterion I mean, introduction yeah. it's of the film, Renoir himself is like, yeah, it's not a very good movie. Well, critically, it's not... It's, it's unusually bad for a Criterion release. Yeah. Well, because before we were recording these episodes, I, I looked on IMDb, and it's sitting at like a 6.1 or something, which even for a Criterion film, is shockingly low. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Yeah, unusual. 
I, I will say, though, uh, uh, after that quote, though, uh, Renoir does, does go on to say in the intro that he really enjoyed the experience and it kind of allowed him to experiment. So he, d- he didn't hate making the film, but he just thinks the final product wasn't that good. Yeah, but if you're if you're changing what would cons- I would consider to be the hook of the film, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so like, I guess I guess late in the piece because it sounds like he was running on, you know, run off the edge of the cliff, a cliff and just had to keep running. Yeah, it, it turns out it was like right at the last minute. They had everyone cast and they had you know the scripts and the sets and everything, and it was like oh shit. <laughs> so, but he he still mm. had the strong desire of wanting to make a farcical comedy with Ingrid Bergman because he he just thought she would make such a wonderful comedy star. Uh. Do you agree with that? I think she's. Did you charming. find her funny? I I, again, I think she's yeah, yeah fell into the trap that like you were saying like we're watching the film and you're like this I'm not laughing at this I, it's not landing with with me personally but I think Ingrid Bergman is a brilliant actress and incredibly charming and you whenever she's like like John Jobin like whenever and or Anna Magnani whenever they're on screen you're interested but. Mm. It's not enough to be interested in one of your actors to string you along for an hour forty-five. No, it, it did. It didn't. It didn't work. But but she she was she was amazing. She she can be at no, she can be romantic and very very. It's almost like sexual erotic, oh, yeah. but she's not. She's not. Not in that typical way, but it's she has like such a magnetism about her when she when she was this young, when she was older. You know, there's something about her that that really just pulls you in, and you think like behind behind that that really lovely face, there's you know like a whole bunch of mystery going on. Yeah, that that makes me wonder if that is just an inherently built-in thing for pretty much everyone after seeing her in films like Casablanca, where you're like. The mystery, the sex appeal, the romanticism, everything there, and you can't help but disassociate. That's what she is. Mm. Or it could be why she was just so... Yeah. That's why she was so perfect for that role. Yeah. I don't know. I and mean, it's like... It'd be ridiculous to try and figure it out, but it's just... she get. Do you know what I mean? Like, to try and put words on that mm. in any kind of substantial way. Yeah. But she's she does have that mag- magnetism about her, where it's like she's not playing a sexy role, but she is sexy. Yeah. Um, and she she's perfect for that when when you're when she's pulling in all these men of power around her. Yeah. And uh, almost kind of, you know, it's almost like witchcraft mm. to them. They kind of just can't help it. So. So yeah. Uh, I got I, I let's kind of let's push on. Um, I don't have much more to say about this film. Me neither. Um, I, I like I, you know, the, the, I the, yeah respect people if, if they like their opinion if they enjoy them. I I just did not and didn't really engage, so don't have that much for them. This one in particular with the comedy was was like, you know, it was some of the jokes were. You know, adults running into each other, bonking each other on the head, and fucking, you know, it's like I'd expect to see that in a uh, a toddler's <laughs> or, or something a toddler's like TV Stooges show on, on the Marx Brothers or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, I guess. 
in any case, I was like, okay, it's just not for me. I can't. I, I don't think it's funny. Yeah. But anyway, it's all good. Hmm. Uh, I still really enjoyed the sets, and I still really enjoyed uh, a lot of the performances. It's fine. Hmm. Um, and the themes, I think, were the standout. Where it's just like you know, I mean, plenty of people have have discussed those kinds of themes. I think especially this film as well, because of Ing- Ingmar, um, Ingrid Bergman. She has that uh, that sex appeal and that magnetism. She it, it lets it kind of suggests that um, people of people in positions of power they're doing it for people like her as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's also a that's not you know a, a, an absolute truth, but. There is I mean, some the film is, is also suggesting that. Yeah, yeah, there is some truth to that. Yeah. Well, should we start to kind of wrap it up or at least tie everything kind of together? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, sure. like I've said multiple times, the box set is called Stage and Spectacle. And having gotten to the end of all three of these films, there's a definite progression of that idea, the, you know, both the stage and the spectacle performance and show business. And, you know, with the first one being about people who are infatuated with performance and the show, you know, you have the prince, you know, falling in love with the beautiful performer and being enamored by show business and gifting her this beautiful golden coach. And then in the next one, you, uh, in French Can Can, you have, it's a giant dissection of what goes into show business, all the people behind it, the machinations behind it. And then the third one, as I've kind of alluded to before, it's kind of saying we all do that to some degree. It's like taking this, so each, with as we go through the box set, it's taking this idea of stage and spectacle and examining it in three different forms, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and because, because of that, the, I think the three films work better when you're on the other side of them and you can kind of look back at what they're saying and doing as a whole as opposed to when you're sitting there individually watching one by one by one it, it's not exactly the best almost entertaining experience but at the end you're like oh, okay i get what he was doing yeah it's yeah i think on their own they f- feel like uh they feel like a a saturday morning a saturday noon uh movie that was on and your grandparents would watch it and be like this is amazing do you want to watch this and i and i look at it and go fuck no <laughs> yeah um but yeah you put it you put it in a trilogy and you dress it up and i mean it's john Renoir, so you know you have to you have to treat it seriously too yeah uh or, or you don't i don't know it's up to you um but in any case i'm it's 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 a different Renoir. i'm glad that i've experienced what i've seen before with some more serious stuff that rules of the game is kind of playful, but also quite serious too at times thematically. Yeah, and these are just trying to be quite fun. And yeah, I think he nails the farcical elements in rules of the game when it is the whole, you know, the try the racing around the kitchen, trying to kill each other and stuff. And, you know, he, he nails that stuff. I think because it is staged so well and he's less mm-hmm. focused on color and spectacle and he's letting it actually just play out like, like a film. Um, yeah. And then, sorry, I interrupted there. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, in, in these films, the, uh, the comedy is coming from 
how silly it is to get you know entangled in a romantic drama scenario with you know men and women and whatnot and in rules of the game it's like it's funny because lives are on the line and and it's it's, it's getting pretty fucking nutty yeah um so i i don't know like i'm, I'm glad i watched these obviously i'm, I'm fine with that <laughs> Uh, it was it was pretty rough. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, the, like, <laughs> I'm not gonna I lie. We, it was rough. You know, like we say at the beginning of the episode, the, these were some of the toughest sits we've had in quite a while. Which, which, especially coming hot off the heels of lower depths and really enjoying that, was kind of odd for Renoir films. But to yeah, each of their own. I feel I like guess? I'm, I'm it, it, well, precisely, and and I feel like uh, to some degree, I'm I'm back at the start of watching Ingmar Berman films. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, you just you like, get, like I just don't, there, I don't, I don't get, get it. it. Like, why, why? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> you never know. Well, we, like I said, we'll eventually get to Le Bet Humain, The River, some more Renoir films, and you know, yeah, unpack it a little bit more. Yeah, I think, uh, I think what's what's got me is he. I've, I'm starting to realize now that he has quite a large scope, and you need to be prepared to, um. To change gears yeah. with his films. And, you know, it, not everything is a lofty kind of examination of the human condition. He can just make a fun, playful, romantic comedy musical. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Fun, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, do you have anything else, or does that kind of wrap us up for Stage and Spectacle, three films by Jean Renoir? Uh, I think I'm done. What is next? Uh, well, I'll just quickly say uh, that uh, it's still in print from Criterion as a three-disc DVD set, and it is uh, all three films are available to stream on the Criterion channel if you are so inclined. But our next film is Port of Shadows by Marcel Carnet. Mm-hmm. Have I you have, seen this? I have not, and I know nothing okay. about it. So, okay, I'm intrigued. Um, um, yeah, so 1938... Uh, French again. We'll we'll see how we go. Okay, no worries. Hmm. But I guess that'll wrap us up for this week's episode, looking at Jean Renoir's uh, stage and spectacle. Uh, yeah, if you have any comments, queries, uh, if you absolutely hated us not liking these films, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail or you can follow me on Twitter at criterionquest. Otherwise, we'll be back next week with Port of Shadows. Thanks for listening, everybody. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.